Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we know that we come to you in all sorts of different states this morning. Father, we pray that if we are proud this morning, you would humble us. Father, pray that if we are in need of encouragement this morning, um, that you would encourage us. Father, pray that you'd speak to us through your word. And that, Father, you would change us by your spirit as your word works in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's three minutes past three. They said they'd be there at three o'clock. They know that you're waiting. They know that it's raining. When you text them, they tell you that they're on their way. But you're sure that they haven't actually set off yet. It's amazing as you wait how the seconds tick by. Eventually it's seven minutes past three. They turn up and you give them the silent treatment for the long car journey home. It's amazing how impatient we get, isn't it? Uh, Even in just a matter of minutes. I don't know if you relate to that story. I certainly do. Um, But we get so impatient, don't we, so quickly. And as we come to our passage, we're going to deal with Abraham, who has been waiting for ten years for God to fulfill his promises. God had made his promises to Abraham ten years before, at least as we come to our passage. He'd made him great big promises, promises of a land, of a people, and great blessing. Last week we saw that God had confirmed that he was going to keep these promises, giving Abraham offspring from his own body, not adoptional through any other way. But because of the wait, because of the time, Sarah comes up with a plan. And that's what we see in our first point. A husband listens to his wife. Have a look with me again at verses uh, 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that he had conceived, that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, "May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt." May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai decides there's another way of doing this. Maybe since God had told them that the offspring that would provide this great nation was to come from Abraham, maybe he wasn't so specific about it coming from Sarah. Maybe God had intended that they would use a surrogate. After all, God had said Abraham's body, not hers. And this was quite a common practice uh, then. It's a common practice in certain parts of the world now. And any child that was born to the servant would be classified as the first wives, not the surrogates. That would be the norm uh, in this sort of situation. We'll see that later on in Genesis with Rachel and Leah and the way that they do that with their maidservants as well. I mean, with uh, Rachel and Leah, could you even say which ones are actually... The children of Rachel and Leah, which ones are their servants out of the twelve? It gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? Because they'd just be counted as part of the family and counted to the 
uh, the woman who uh, gave the surrogate to her husband. Now, of course, because it was normal, doesn't mean that it was trouble-free. It caused all sorts of pain and problems. And we're going to see this in our passage, and we'll see it later on in Genesis, uh, when we come to that family later on. But it's Sarai's idea, and Abraham, we're told, listens to his wife. He takes the supposed shortcut for God's promises that Sarai seems to have found. But as he listens to his wife, it's supposed to remind us of another story. Genesis three seventeen, and Abraham, and sorry, and Adam said, because you, sorry, God said, and to, there we go, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam, only really a few chapters before this in Genesis, did the same thing. He listened to his wife. Now, I should be really careful here in saying this. It is not, (laughs) gentlemen, (laughs) a bad idea to listen to your wives. That's not the problem. Uh, In fact, I would thoroughly encourage you to listen to your wives. That's that's a good thing. But what was happening in Genesis 3 was that Adam, instead of actually listening and then making his own decision, just decided to reverse the order of creation by following his wife. Following his wife's lead rather than him leading. You see, in in Genesis, if you think about it, the man listens to the woman, who in turn has listened to the animals. They were supposed to have dominion over the animals. So it sort of flips everything upside down. The animal tells the woman what to do, tells the man what to do. It's all sort of flipped over in the order of creation. So it's not saying don't listen to your wife, but a husband's role is to lead in the family. But here Abraham doesn't take the lead. He instead decides to listen and follow what his wife says. And it proves disastrous. And the outcome of what Abraham does here, we actually still see on our televisions and our newspapers and websites week in, week out. We'll see why a bit later on. But it's a huge, disastrous decision. We also see in this, uh, in this case here a foreshadowing of the difficult relationship with Egypt. So it's not by accident that the woman that's given to Abraham is an Egyptian. Hagar is Egyptian, and Egypt plays a a bit of an ambiguous role in Genesis. Remember that one of the reasons that Genesis was written was to remind them that leaving Egypt was a good idea. The man Egypt, there's actually a man called Egypt in Genesis, is a descendant of the cursed Ham, and assumed that the nation followed from him. Egypt is the place where Abraham has already lied about Sarah. He's already got in trouble there. And yet, Egypt was the place where Abraham thrives. Egypt is the place where Joseph will be enslaved and imprisoned, sold to the descendants of the very child that's in Hagar's womb. Yet, Egypt is the place of refuge for Joseph and his family. This is the place where Joseph thrives. Egypt will become a place of slavery for the Israelites, But again, they'll massively increase in number. So Genesis is being written to the wilderness generation by Moses. And apart from being a true account of history, it is written with that agenda that leaving Egypt was a good idea and pressing onto the promised land is a good idea too. So in this section, it makes sense in one way that Hagar is the baddie of the peace. She's the Egyptian She's the one that's provoking Sarah. Do you see that in verse 4? 
And when she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. She's got contempt on her. Now in the ancient world, they didn't have fertility tests. If a couple couldn't conceive, it could be either party that had the problem. But when Hagar conceives, it's clear where the problem is. The problem's with Sarai, not with Abraham. Abraham's able to conceive through someone else. And you can imagine the talk in Abraham's camp, can't you? So it was Sarai that had the problem. Abraham's fertile enough. Sarai's the one that's not fertile. Not even as fertile as her slave. And it would seem that similar thoughts are going on in Hagar's head. And also in Sarai's head. Sometimes a look of contempt is as much as the, in the eyes of the receiver, isn't it? As the eyes of the giver. We see it repeatedly again in the life of Jacob that there's always perceived jealousy there. There's always perceived contempt. Childlessness can be incredibly hard for people. Especially when there's a strong desire to have children. And it's often that people in that particular situation feel judged by the society around them. It's really uh, a difficult situation. But for Sarai, it's not all in her head. It's not that she's imagining that people are looking with contempt. The Bible tells us what's in Hagar's head. She is looking contemptuously on her mistress. And Sarah can't take it. She blames Abraham. Do you see that there in verse 5? May the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. No doubt she suspects that Abraham is going to fall in love with Hagar, or love Hagar more, because she's given him a child. I mean, think about Henry VIII. You know, if you didn't give Henry VIII a boy, you were toast, weren't you? Uh, let's face it. It was all about the heir. It was all about who could give me the son And she's worried here that the situation is going to be the same. That he'll love Hagar because she's been able to give him a child. Well, Abraham again passively passes the book. Instead of stepping in and leading, he passively lets her have her own way. See what he says in verse 6? But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. Abraham doesn't come out well from this, does he? He just passes it on to Sarah. You do, you, she's your servant. You do with what you want. Often in these passages here, Abraham comes across as a witness to events rather than actually joining in. He's not leading his family and his people in the way that the Bible expects husbands to lead their families. Actually, he just passes the book. And so often that happens with husbands in marriages, doesn't it? Husbands abdicate their responsibility. And again, we see the tragic effects of this throughout the Bible. And here is one of them. You'd think, wouldn't you, that Abraham would have sympathy. He's just been told in the previous passage that his descendants will be mistreated slaves. That's what he's been told. But instead of helping here, he just lets his jealous wife give full vent to her wicked jealousy on her servant. So Sarai begins to make life hard for Hagar. Remember, these are the days before employment rights. There were no policemen. Who knows what Sarah did to her servant? Sarai doesn't come out from this well either, does she? 
It's a bit like that situation where, you know, boyfriends sometimes treat their girlfriends really badly so that they'll break up with them. You know that situation? You must have come across this. You know, so instead of actually to getting the guts to dump them, they just start treating them badly and hope that they will leave. You come across that, yeah? She does a similar thing here. She treats the servant badly so that she will run away. So then, who gets the sympathy? Well, Sarah gets the sympathy. Oh, the maidservant ran away. Oh, isn't that terrible? But it's Sarah that's behind all this, treating her badly. And Hagar runs away. Her very name means flee. Run away. But again, we begin to see echoes of Exodus, don't we? The mistreated slaves leaving their slave master. Will God have sympathy on this mistreated slave? Well, we see that in our next section. God listens to a slave. Have a look with me, verses uh, 7 to 12. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. God comes and meets with Hagar, the runaway slave, the angel of the Lord. Frequent appearances through Genesis. Uh, The angel of the Lord, equivalent really to meeting with God himself. Now remember, this is a slave who's just run away from the family that's inherited the promises. Or been given the promises, sorry. You might expect God to come in judgment. She's run run away from his chosen family. She's looked with contempt on the promise bearers. But instead, he comes with mercy. He asks her a question. So often, again, in Genesis, when God meets with people, he asks them questions. It's not really because he doesn't know the answer. It's for them, isn't it? Where are you? For example, where is your brother? That's for Abel, isn't it? For Cain, sorry, about Abel. Here he says, where are you coming from? Where are you going? He wants her to think about the answer. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? She gives half an answer, doesn't she? She's running away from her mistress. It's to remind her what she's doing. She doesn't say where she's going, but it's obvious from the the geography of what's happening when she's on her way to Shur that actually she's on her way back down to Egypt. She's going back to her native land, if you like. But instead of shouting at her, he tells her three things. First thing he tells her is to go back to Sarai. Remember, this book is written to tell them that going back to Egypt is never a good idea. He stops Hagar from going back to Egypt. Despite the cruelty, she's to return. Now this might seem a little bit strange, because actually in only a few chapters time, Abraham will send her away with a son with God's approval. So why does he tell her to go back here? Well, God is concerned that she doesn't want to become Abraham's enemy. 
Remember that part of the promise to Abraham was that those who cursed Abraham would themselves be cursed. Getting on the wrong side of Abraham was not good for your future. And it foreshadows the exodus again. In the end, she will be told to go. She'll be sent out. She'll be sent out with their blessing rather than sneaking away. And in that sense, all consciences will be clear, won't they? At this point, she's a runaway. But when she actually leaves, she'll be sent out by Abraham. The second thing he tells her is that he will make her into a great people. Now, that might be a, surprise you, a bit of a surprising promise. It's quite similar, isn't it, to the one that he made to Abraham. But there's no mention of a land here. There's no mention of blessing. But God will keep his promise. He will make this person into a great nation. And that promise has happened. Ishmael did become the father of a great people. Uh, In modern day, we call them the Arabs. Millions across the Middle East claim their direct descent from Ishmael, her son. Indeed, the holiest site for Islam in Mecca, that square box that you see them walk around, Muslims believe was built by Ishmael, because he's their sort of forefather. Everything for them is traced back through Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. So he did become a great nation in that sense. They're all over the Middle East, um, and they're, called the, uh, they're not called the Ishmaelites anymore, but the Arabs. But she's told as well that her son will be a wild donkey of a son. A wild, uncontrollable child. Now, you might want to say, aren't they all? (laughs) But what it means here is that he'll be nobody's slave. He'll be nobody's pushover. He'll know his way to fight his way out of a corner. His descendants will be known through history for their warring ways. Indeed, if you think about early Islam, for example, which started among the Arab peoples, in its first few centuries, it spread through conquest rather than conversion. War was a way of life for many in the Middle East tribes. So one could argue what we actually have here with the the prophecy of Ishmael is the beginning of the Middle East conflict. Israel, which was, was going to be born through Isaac, versus the Arabs, Ishmael. The descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael at each other's throat. Actually, we see it here in black and white. It's flushed out in later chapters and we see it uh, through the rest of history. In fact, even by the end of Genesis, this is happening. So Genesis 25, 18, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And he, that's uh, Ishmael, settled over against his kinsmen. So there's this idea of trying to find a place and sort of pushing out the other peoples that are there. But the emphasis here is not so much on what the sun will do, but what God is doing. God hears this poor slave woman forced to run from her home. He's doing this because he's heard her affliction. God has heard her cries in the wilderness. Names have uh, meanings, don't they? Uh, so, for example, uh, Janet, who's not with us actually this morning, means little Joan. You know. Andrew, who's also not with us this morning actually, means manly. I've never met an Andrew who doesn't like being told that. It's always a really good one. I've picked three really bad names to research, haven't I? Penny uh, means thread on a bobbin, if you know, from Penelope. Um, Steve, I'll go, Steve means crown. There you go. Um, Sarah means princess. So all names have meanings, don't they? 
And God names this child with a meaning. Which passive Abraham will go along with at the end of the passage. He'll just let her call him this. Her child's name is to be God hears. God listens. Her very child's name is to be Ishmael. God hears. Every time she calls his name, she'll remember that God listened to her in her distress. God is a God who listens. That's what it's telling us. And he listens to us. He hears our tears, our pains, our sorrows. Psalm 56 verse 8, which is on the back of your notice sheet. It's a lovely verse from the Psalms. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It's a reminder that God knows when we're hurting. He knows when we're struggling. But he doesn't look on impassively. He hears our sorrows. And he hears our prayers too. As an attentive father to a child. That can be hard sometimes as a father. Sort of listening to your children all the time when they're talking. But it's not hard for God, is it? Sometimes his answer is a no. Sometimes it's a not yet. But he listens to his children. And he does what's best for them. And here, he even listens to a pagan slave like Hagar. If he listens to her, how much more his beloved children adopted through Christ? God hears. That's what this passage is teaching us. Surprising then that our last section should be the God who sees. Have a look with me at verses 13 to 16. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Laharoi and it, um, Laharoi, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old. When Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. We to really take it from this that she didn't really know the God of Abraham. She certainly didn't know him as Abraham did. She doesn't call him the Lord or, or a name like that. She names him herself. She tries to work out this God who is speaking to her. And she calls him the God of seeing. And she names the well in her area, the place where she's been, where she was Drinking the well of him that lives and sees me. It's interesting, in the West we generally name things after geography. Uh, but in the East they name things after history. So Bramhope, found out this week, uh, it, it means a Bram was a broom tree. And then a hop originally was a valley. So it's the valley of broom trees in Bramhope. I think it's really lovely. Um, Bradford was a broad ford, and they just pronounced it so badly that uh, it became Bradford. <laughs> just for my own, my own curiosity, I looked up Mydenroyd, which is just outside Halifax. I've always wondered what that meant. And apparently it means a clearing for a settlement where two rivers meet. There you go. So next time you meet someone from Halifax, uh, you can tell them you know what that means. But we name it after the geography, don't we? What happens uh, like in the area. But they name it after what has happened... In history, 
And she names the well after her experience with God. What was that experience? God heard her. That's what we've just been told. But here, the emphasis changes to seeing. God saw her. And she, we are told, saw God. So why does it move from hearing to seeing? After all, didn't she hear God again, rather than see him? And didn't he hear her, rather than see her? Well, the two are not as far apart as you think. To hear and to see God are not all that different. So, for example, in Exodus, when Moses asked to see God, God speaks to him instead. It's actually through God proclaiming his name that Moses sees God. So Exodus 33, again on the back of your sheets, uh, 17 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The way that God shows himself is to speak. So if we want to see God, really we need to use our ears, if you like. We see God as he proclaims himself in the word. This is our normal experience of seeing God, if there is such a thing as a normal experience of seeing God. It's actually through hearing his words. That's how he appears to us. That's how we see God. And that's how he appeared uh, to Hagar. And to be heard by God and to be seen by God are not all that different either. Those two ideas come back together again during the time of Moses, when the Israelites are in slavery. So Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Actually, when God hears us, he sees us. It's the idea of remembrance, of of taking us into his mind. And caring for us. And that's what Hagar experienced. God saw. God knew. She had seen the God who knows her. Who knows her circumstances. Here you see God even knows the circumstances of people who aren't his. So think about it. If God saw the plight of a pagan slave. And showed compassion. How much more will God see the hardships of his own children? God is a merciful God. He's kind to the mistreated, to the fatherless and widow, to the poor and the oppressed. He shows compassion to the downtrodden. And also we've got to remember in the midst of all this that he is a God who knows what it's like to be mistreated. Let's not forget that our God was sold for the price of a slave. As he came in the person of Jesus. He was scorned. He was not fairly treated. He was beaten and crucified. So let's not forget that as we see this suffering. That it points us forward to the suffering of our suffering servant. The true Israelite. 
the true man of sorrows, our substitute. See, in our passage, God is hearing, God is seeing. But in terms of big promises and the storyline, not much spiritual is going on. The promises that Hagar has given are earthly ones. No promise of great blessing on an Abraham level, just a mighty people. But what it points us forward to is something huge. On the cross, something much bigger was happening. His suffering was not the jealous lashings out of a wife. His suffering was for our sin, for our wrongdoing. He's a God who sees everything. We've seen that. Who knows everything. He knows when we act jealously. He knows when we sit there impassive to suffering. And yet he still sent his son to the cross. That should be a comforting thought to us. Even though he knows what we're like. He still sent his son to die in our place. Even though he knew what Hagar had done, he still had compassion on her. So even though we let him down with our impatience with one another, even our impatience with God and his promises, especially when we want life to run our own timetables rather than God's, even though we are impatient, he still sent his son to die for us just at the right time while we were still sinners. We all get impatient, though, even in the space of a few minutes. But God is not slow in keeping his promises. Every new day is another day when we can trust God and see others put their trust in him before Jesus returns, as he promised, as we were finding out about earlier. Until that day, God is with us. He hears us. He sees us. And we're never alone, are we? God is with us. Showing us his love and fatherly care. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you heard the cries of that runaway slave. Father, thank you that you hear us, Father, when we're in distress. Father, you know each of our circumstances. You know... Uh, Father, what distresses us, Father, you know our troubles, our pains, our problems. Thank you that you hear and show compassion. Father, thank you that you see us in the midst of our troubles and that, Father, you care and you act uh, for us. So, Father, pray that you keep us trusting this week in your love and care, knowing that Christ is always with us, as he promised in the Great Commission, to be with us even till the end of the age. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.